0: This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series.
1: Hello, and welcome to another Dialogue podcast. This time we're pleased to present David Bokavoy who is working on a forthcoming trilogy of books titled Authoring the Old Testament. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the board of directors of Dialogue Foundation, publishers of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. If you enjoy these podcasts, we hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing to the journal and, if you're able, by making a tax-deductible contribution to Dialogue Foundation. You can subscribe or contribute online by going to DialogueJournal.com. This presentation by David Bockevoy was given to the Orange County section of the Miller-Eccles Study Group on January 17, 2014. Some of the most fascinating portions of this podcast are found in the Q&A session at the end, so you will definitely want to stick around for that. The next voice you hear will be my wife, Dawn Thurston, introducing Dr. Bakavoy.
0: It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker tonight, uh, Dr. David Bakavoy, who currently teaches at uh, the University of Utah, courses in Bible, and Mormon Studies. He had an interesting new class last semester on the subject of Book of Mormon as literature. Wouldn't that be an interesting class to take? David received his bachelor's degree from BYU in history, and then went to Brandeis, where he received his master's and a Ph.D. in the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East. He's published nu- numerous articles and books and is the co-author of the book Testaments Links Between the Book of Mormon and the Hebrew Bible. He'll be speaking tonight on the topic of authoring the Old Testament Genesis through Deuteronomy, which is part one of a trilogy that will be coming out. Part one of the book which uh, of his trilogy which he'll be discussing tonight is uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. I don't know if you're going to get that far, are you?
2: Definitely. <laughs> <You're> definitely
0: <okay. laughs> and part two, which will be coming out later, is on the prophets. And then the third part of the trilogy will be on the writing. So that's going to be a wonderful collection. He is the father of four children. His oldest daughter is on a mission currently in Chile. Um, He has taught with CES for uh, a number of years, is currently teaching seminary in addition to teaching at the U, besides making that commute up to uh, the U from Utah Valley where he lives. He grew up in San Diego, some of his family is still living there, and I think that's all I need to say. He's he's also a gospel doctor. Oh, yes, and he's currently the gospel doctor teacher
2: in his school. Thank you. It is wonderful to be with you tonight. Thank you so much for attending, and I hope in the next couple minutes to share some things that will be of value to you. Although I must tell you, there is no way that in the next 45 minutes... I'm going to be able to explain the documentary hypothesis and the way that I use that to make sense of not only the Hebrew Bible, but our Latter-day <coughs> Scriptures, including the Book of Abraham, the Book of Moses, and the Book of Mormon, of course. That's not going to happen. I, you'll have to get the book. Hopefully you're interested enough. Not that I am trying to make money off of it, but uh, it is a... Um, It was a labor of love. Let me tell you just a little bit about myself, and you won't get this in the book, so you're getting something in addition, even if I can't give you the basic summary. Uh, So I I came home from my mission with a passion for church history, for the scriptures, for the gospel, and uh, started taking an institute class at what was then Utah Valley Community College. Took an institute class from an institute instructor there who knew a little bit of Hebrew, and he threw that into his lesson. And I just fell in love. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. This is this is an amazing skill that can contribute to my understanding of the scriptures. I must learn Hebrew. So I went and took classes in Biblical Hebrew at Brigham Young University. And uh, then started taking branched from that into Canaanite languages that were offered there at the Y. And my goal was seminaries and institutes. That's what I wanted to do. And I went through the CES program, and they give you the list. They tell you, here are the figures. Everybody that wants to get hired, Derek knows what I'm talking about. And they tell you, therefore, don't plan on it. It's not going to happen To you have a backup plan. My backup plan was Brandeis, a non-sectarian Jewish institution in Boston that specializes in Old Testament or Hebrew Bible studies. That was my backup plan. When I was accepted, it became my primary plan. And then something interesting occurred. I majored in history. I minored in Near Eastern studies. I had a passion for this subject. I was on my way to Brandeis, and I was, which is you know, one of the premier institutions academically for Old Testament scholarship. I was thrilled that I'd been accepted. It was such an honor. And then I was pulled aside by a Hebrew professor at BYU, and he said, you may want to rethink this. I said, why? I was shocked, right? Why? Why? And he said, well, because you will have to study with an excommunicated member of the church. Not that he would ever be unkind to you, but it's clearly a reflection of the very critical approach that they will take to scripture that you, as a believing Latter-day Saint, won't feel comfortable with. And I was shocked, and I said, well... I won't buy into something like the documentary hypothesis. That term may mean nothing to you yet. I mean, I I won't buy into something like that, but I want to understand the way scholars interpret these texts. But it won't affect my testimony. So, okay, good. A short time thereafter, I was brought into a class with a religion professor, And this individual pulled me aside and said, I think it's great you're going to Brandeis. Don't do Bible, he said. (laughs) Whatever you do, do something on the side. Do Assyriology. Do Comparative Semitics. Do Northwest Semitics. My heavens, do Egyptology. But don't do Bible. Because, he said, we've yet to have anyone pass through a historical critical program such as that and retain his or her Spiritual convictions and testimony, so don't do it. Now, I dismissed <clears throat> that, too. I thought, ah, nothing will The testimony's too strong. Nothing's going to happen. And off I went to Brandeis. Famous last words. I get into my first class, and we're studying ancient Near Eastern and biblical laws. We're lining them up in parallels and seeing how these things work together and the the contradictions between them. And all of a sudden, it took about two weeks of looking at the text seriously before I realized, if I was going to address the Bible in any serious sense, I was going to have to shift some paradigms. and It was very uncomfortable, especially because I was so devout and conservative in my approach. Uh, and it was, it was frightening. And I went through that first year and got to the summer... And I decided, okay, now I'm going to read everything I possibly can on arguments for the historicity and ancient authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Everything that's ever been... And I had, you know, read farm stuff before, but I read it with a new intensity, a new conviction. And I read everything I possibly could. And stuff I liked the most was from John Twetness, who I met later that summer. And I started talking to him and had some observations that I shared with John. And uh, he said, hey, that's really good. He was working for Farms at the time. He said, send me that. So I started sending him stuff like every week. He's like, you should write a book. In fact, let's write a book together. And I'm like, great. You're, you're kind of my hero right now. Let's do this. So we did this little project together that came out. And um, was this little project on test, links between the Book of Mormon and the Hebrew Bible. As we started this. And I felt like that was good. But it wasn't enough. I really, I fell in love with historical criticism. I fell in love with a critical approach to the Bible and the answers. My heavens, Isaiah made sense for the first time. I felt like in the past I was taking Isaiah, and the reason it was so complicated is because I was trying to make it fit as a square peg, trying to make it fit into a, a round hole, and it wasn't working. And then if I just looked at it historically and critically, I understood the text. So it was wonderfully exciting and exhilarating and thrilling. But at the same time, I did not want to lose my spiritual convictions, and I was nervous. And so I went into—I don't tell a lot of people this—but I speak openly now. I, I went into CES professionally to stay in the church, and that was that was a conscious decision on my part because I didn't want to—I didn't want to leave. I, didn't, I I loved it, historical criticism, but I wanted to be—I wanted both. I wanted to have both worlds. And uh, it's been a journey through me throughout for my life. Um, and I like, and I even refer to this in the introduction. I sometimes describe myself as a spiritual slash intellectual amphibian, because I feel like I'm walking in two different worlds. Sometimes I look at the Bible, and I use it as a revelatory tool, and other times I look at the Bible and I'm historical critical, completely independent from my theological lens, and I publish on from that agenda. But I've also transitioned in the sense as a Latter-day Saint, where I feel like. Now, critical thinking, historical criticism, is not antithetical to spirituality. In fact, just the opposite. And and I was influenced, of course, studying at a Jewish university, for you know that Judaism is a is a is a religion that allows for critical thought and dialogue and debate and discussion as part of the religion. And so I was influenced going to this Jewish university by this thought, and it's changed who I am. And I believe very strongly that historical criticism, critical thinking, even when we must shift paradigms, is part of true spiritual growth. I like this quote from Joseph Smith. We should waste and wear out our lives in bringing to light all the hidden things from our doctrine and covenants. That's very much my approach to Mormonism. I believe there's great power in that the Hebrew Bible is a term that scholars use for our Christian Old Testament. Scholars try to use bias-free language. Certainly there are those, as we recognize, who revere this collection of materialist scripture who do not believe in a New Testament. And therefore, academics like to use the neutral term Hebrew Bible for the Old Testament. Uh, Traditionally in ancient and contemporary Judaism, the Hebrew Bible is divided into three sections. It is divided into the Torah, which means law, But more properly, instruction. The Nevi'im, a Hebrew word for prophets, and Ketuvim, which means writings. These three terms, T-N-K, as you see at the top, provide the Hebrew term for what we call the Old Testament, Tanakh. We can see the idea of a division of sacred literature. Already at the time of Christ, as reflected in the book of Matthew, Matthew five, verse seventeen, where he states he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, which by the way is probably an example to what literary scholars refer to as Marismus, a term that refers to two opposite words that mean all or every. Think Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. By the way, this is great for Genesis chapter one, verse one. Remember, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, the entirety of the cosmos. Even better than that, Adam, Eve, well, the man, the woman, put more properly, consume a fruit that will provide a knowledge of good, bad. They will become like the gods with the totality of knowledge, and I believe that totality of knowledge hints to something very specific. Christ tells us that the whole thing points to him specifically. Well, the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, although they are different names, are also distinguished in more than simply that. They comprise different numbers of books, which they place in a different order. And as Mark Brettler, my former professor at Brandeis, explained in his book, How to Read the Bible, the sequence that you'll find in a Jewish Bible, if you will, is different than what we have in our Christian Old Testament. And that affects the way that we interpret these books. Just their sequence, for example... In our Christian Old Testament, what is the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi. Because we end with those prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. We end with that. And then we move on. But think about that. If you end with Malachi and the prophets, and then go into the New Testament, how do you read the prophets? That it is prophetic material pointing towards the New Testament. In a Jewish Bible, it's arranged in that sequence that I identified a few minutes ago. The prophets are actually in the middle. So it these, there are different ways of approaching this material that we should be aware of as Latter-day Saints. Let me jump to this really quickly. and we're gonna, I'm going to tell you that one of the things in the book that I deal with is obviously the issue of authorship, which, as one biblical scholar points out, is somewhat of a misnomer. And th- what I mean by that is that when we use the term author, we think of individuality. Of creativity, of, of, of someone's unique <coughs> intellectual property and creation, and some have argued that the creators of the Bible were not authors in that sense at all, but they were more they were more um, scribes, if you will. scribes, they are more artisans than artists, is the terminology that's used. And while that may be true on some level. The reality is, I went with authoring the Old Testament as a title for a reason, and the reason for that is because despite the fact that we view authorship differently than ancient people do, that's true, still, many of the studies that have come out in recent years have shown what great creativity exists in the Reformation and the reformulation of various traditions that appear in the Bible. Whether And it's not just from oral tradition into the text, it's reforming texts that existed and that later Israelite Judean scribes felt sacred and then revised. The book goes in and describes this process. One of the other things that I had to deal with in writing the book, of course, is the way that the theories of authorship and the development in this instance, specifically of Genesis through Deuteronomy, would affect our latter-day scripture as Mormons, because it touches every aspect of it my heavens, if the book of Genesis is an amalgamation of separate documentary traditions, and it is, I say with complete conviction, okay, unless it's, I'm I'm as sure as that is my existence, unless I'm like in the Truman Show, okay, (laughs) then, I mean, that's about the, it's, it's doc they're documentary traditions that have been brought together by an editor reflective of what we read about Mormon doing with the book of Mormon. Moses isn't the author, The book's going to talk about that process. It's going to talk about how scholars understand how these texts were authored. If that is the case, that's problematic for Mormons. Despite the fact that we have an analogy with the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon itself refers to the first five books as the Books of Moses. And it draws upon them heavily. The Book of Moses itself in our Latter-day Saint tradition is a revised version of the opening chapters of Genesis, taking Those chapters and putting them into the mouth, if you will, or even better stated, into the hand of Moses as author. Book of Abraham does the same thing within chapters 4 and 5, and it's going to revise Genesis material. What does that mean? What am I going to do? Well, one thing, in this course that I taught at the University of Utah last semester, it was a thrilling experience. To talk about uh, the Book of Mormon as literature and try and bring different groups together... I'll give you one thing that we talked about that my students really enjoyed and that I decided ultimately to put in the book. Um, one of the things that makes authorship different in the Book of Mormon than in the Hebrew Bible is that he, the Hebrew Bible reflects general ancient Near Eastern tradition, and authors are anonymous. Tradition ascribed those books just to Moses, but Moses didn't write them. okay? And they're unnamed, they're unmentioned. This is very much the tradition and trend. And then you go into the Book of Mormon, and all of a sudden it's I, Nephi, wrote this record. And and, and they're just named, and it's very different. It's very distinct. And I point out, though, that although different, and I'm going to tell you, and I am honest in the book, that historical critical analysis of the Bible presents some challenges for some of the Book of Mormon's claims for ancient authenticity. I'm honest with it. It opened in the book. But I still, reading these individual authors in the Book of Mormon, they feel genuine. They come across as real human beings to me as I read carefully and seriously. I had a long conversation with Grant Hardy. If you've read this book, Understand the Book of Mormon, he and I are kindred on this idea. And one thing I pointed out is this this is interesting. One of the things you'll see this in, in terms of their genuineness, is that is the issue of closure. The book of Mormon... Authors have a hard time closing a book. Have you noticed this? Hardy points it out in terms of Moroni, the reluctant editor. Fantastic book um, that that Hardy put together. You also see it in Jacob. In Jacob chapter 6, it's clearly a sign of concluding on his part. Not only does he use the termination, amen, but he also says, what can I say more? I'm over, I'm done, I'm out. Then all of a sudden we jump to, and after he ends, and he completely ends it, all of a sudden he says, and I'm going to pick this up years later. I had this incredible experience with Sharon. right? And so we have to ask ourselves as critical readers, why? Why did he pick up the pen and start writing again? Well, he starts to talk about Sharon right? And is in, he uses this great flattery, and he talks about how great he was with words and convincing he was to the population as he said things like brother Jacob is that condescending or what? brother Jacob I have sought much opportunity that I might speak unto you for I have heard and also know that thou goest about much preaching that which ye call the gospel or the doctrine of Christ and he have led away much of this people that they pervert the right way of God and keep not the law of Moses which is the right way And then he says, you talk about this Christ figure, but we ought to be emphasizing the law of Moses. Right? And then you have to ask yourself, why? Why after ending and saying, what can I say more? Over, out, I'm done. Amen. Does he pick it up years later and start writing about this encounter with Sharon? That makes perfect sense why he would do something like that. Because Sharon personifies the two themes that Jacob's personal writings focused on throughout his entire record. He's always concerned with pride, right? And Sherem's the personification of such pride. And then what does he do? What does he also talk about? Jacob's always constantly talking about the law of Moses. It points to Christ. That's such a big deal to him. Law of Moses and and pride. These are the two themes. So what happens? At the end of his life, he has this encounter with Sharon <clears throat> and he feels like, I ended, but this is too important to my thesis, to my ideas, and to my religious message. He comes across as an author who has been touched by a human experience. Granted, a sophisticated writer of fiction could do this on his own. It's not I'm not arguing that this is proof that the Book of Mormon is true but I'm sharing with you my feeling that as I read their words, they feel genuine to me, time and time again, despite the challenges that historical criticism presents. Well, why in the world would some of my former professors feel concerned enough to say, oh, don't do Bible, do something else? You might wonder, because some of the things in this book are really exciting. I don't care how for lack of a better term, orthodox. I hate to use that term. Orthodox or conservative or or whatever you want to define someone as. There are things in this book that are going to be exciting for someone in that category. I really believe that. Including, well, of course, things that we read about Joseph, and you're aware of this, how the prophet would teach that, well, there is no such thing as creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, which makes Mormon theology very different than most other forms of Christian theology, certainly different than Judaism. And one of the things that you learn in critical studies of the Hebrew Bible is that that idea that Joseph had is very much the same view that biblical authors had. It's right there in Genesis. So, for example, the first creative act in Genesis chapter 1 is God says, let there be light. Creative act. That's verse 3. Verse 2 is pre-creation. And you think about the substance, if you think through that chapter, and I know you know it, where the Spirit of God, the Ruach, is above the waters and the deep, and the earth was without form and void. Substance is there, and God takes it and organizes it. And the view that scholars have today, academically, of as to what those authors meant parallels what the prophet taught. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. The prophet Joseph Smith is going to give a lot of emphasis to this idea of a council of gods, not only in his teaching, but it certainly is in the book of Abraham. There's a chapter in the book on the book of Abraham. The parallels between the book of Abraham and the council of gods that we now know and understand through critical studies of the Bible are an incredible, to the point that you'll see more recent translations of the Bible, like the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version of Psalm 82, verse 1, Render God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How could historical criticism be threatening to a Latter-day Saint? When a Latter-day Saint learns things like this. Not only that, but you'll see statements like, "Boy, when this book came out in 1994, this was a page turner for me." Okay, I grabbed it. It was like a Harry Potter night for someone else. <laughs> right? I mean, I was just okay. Uh, the host of heaven, the Syro-Palestinian pantheon is bureaucracy. I was there. That was so exciting. And here you have Lowell K. Handy. The Bible calls the assembled beings the host of heaven. It is widely understood, however, that these were the gods who made up the heavenly court in Judah and Israel. Universally, scholars believe now today that monotheism develops in Judaism as a result of the exile. And that if we go back prior to biblical sources, prior to that time period, they are not monotheistic in the way that contemporary Jews and Christians are. Instead, the theology of a divine council of gods in so many incredible ways directly parallels what Joseph teaches in his sermons and that we find in books like the book of Abraham. I've written a lot about this because I think it's a very exciting topic. So when you learn things like the divine council of gods, the fact that the Hebrew Bible points to a organization as opposed to creative process ex nihilo. That's exciting and wonderful, right? I mean, that confirms a testimony for a Lord of his name. So why the concern? Well, what I mean when I'm referring to the historical critical method is the way it is mainstream biblical scholarship. Scholars take the Bible and analyze it historically meaning in its original historical context, which is so different than, as you know, than the time period that we live in today. In other words, how would a text like Genesis chapter 1, a creation narrative, have been interpreted by the average Israelite on the street, or a person in this world of the ancient Near East historically? And to answer that question, we take a critical approach. Not critical in the sense that we are critiquing or criticizing the Bible, But critical, meaning independent from any contemporary theological lens—whether that's Mormonism, any form of Judaism, Protestantism, or what have you—ancient lens. This is mainstream scholarship, and as mainstream scholarship approaches (coughs) this, there are things that Bible scholars have discovered, like the Council of Gods, like creation ex nihilo, that confirm our faith. But there are other things that challenge. We've probably encountered this in your studies or know people who have, especially when they encounter a text like the book of Abraham. So, I argue in my book that this is something we should not fear. Yes, shifting will occur. Paradigms will change and alter. But don't you love Elder Whitson? Speaking of the historical critical approach, though he did not use that terminology. Elder Witzel made this observation, quote, Many Bible accounts that trouble the inexperienced reader become clear and acceptable if the essential meaning of the story is sought out. To read the Bible fairly, it must be read as President Brigham Young suggested. Do you read the scriptures, my brethren and sisters, as though they were written though, although you were writing them a thousand, two thousand, or five thousand years ago? Do you read them as though you stood in the place of the men who wrote them? This is our guide. And then I love this statement. The scriptures must be read intelligently. And as I suggested at the beginning of this presentation, I absolutely believe, at least for me, the historical critical approach is inseparable from my spiritual growth. God wants me to pursue truth. And so away we go. One of my great heroes, and I'm sure he's one of yours as well, is Elder B.H. Roberts. I love Elder Roberts. He's one of my great heroes in life. And he constantly defended this idea that we have to subject our scripture, whether it's the world's scripture in terms of the Bible, or even our specific texts like the Book of Mormon, the Book of Abraham, the Book of Moses, to criticism, to critical analysis. And he recognized this. And I'm not going to give you all of these quotes, but I actually do cite them and provide them in in the study. And now I'm going to jump to this, because I've hinted at this direction already. (coughs) The prophet Joseph Smith was a critical reader of the Bible. And that was one of the points that I wanted to make for those who were reading the text, is that Joseph himself was critical. And he reads and he says, this is not consistent with the way I think God operates. This is not consistent with my revelations. In fact, these things are inconsistent with one another. He's constantly pointing this out. He uses alternate translations to the King James Version, including the German, as you know from his teachings. He'll even go so far in his analysis to revise and produce his own translation. Bushman says in his rough stone rolling work, how did he put it? He said... This was incredibly bold. To to do this project, Joseph must have considered himself to be a prophet amongst prophets. To take the world's scripture and revise it and improve it. But he did it because he was a critical reader. One of the great fundamental principles of Mormonism is to receive truth, let it come from where it may he professed. Therefore, if there is scientific truth, if there is artistic truth, and and I love the way the Givens talk about artistic truth, especially Fiona. She's so lovely. She describes <laughs> it as 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 extra canonical material, if you've heard referred to that as the great artistic work and in Shakespeare and others. It's extra canonical. Right? If there's truth in Shakespeare, if there's truth in biology, if there is truth we take it and we make it ours as Mormons that's what we do states joseph smith the first and fundamental on another occasion the first and fundamental principle of our holy religion is that we have the right to embrace all and every item of the truth without limitation or without being circumscribed or prohibited by the creeds and superstitious notions of men and to that i say amen, though I'm not done yet, but I say amen to Brother Joseph to this, because we don't have, we don't adhere to dogma, we do not adhere to creeds, we are our truth seekers and that is what Mormonism is all about, and so darn it, if Moses didn't write the first five books of the Old Testament then we should know that as Mormons and we should understand that and we should use that understanding to help us better relate to divinity ourselves I like to define the Bible as an effort by various authors to try and make sense of the divinity by which they were touched. We have to approach the text critically, because in so doing, we are able then to look at it and see what the text itself knows. And what the text knows because it was written in a different time period, and, and when the person was touched culturally and religiously in ways that are foreign to our own experience, vastly different than what we know. And if we simply go into the text then and read it, and I'm not trying to belittle our approach in Sunday school, but if we simply go in and extract principles of, that we already believe, like do your home teaching and do your visiting teaching, and a fail to allow the author to tell us his own experience with the divine. Even when that conflicts with what we believe, we're losing a major opportunity to see the way that God speaks to humankind, which as we learned in the Doctrine and Covenant section one, is accordance in accordance with our own language, right that we might come unto understanding. Let me give an illustration of this. Through Genesis chapter one, okay. This is a great illustration. You know there are references to sea monsters in Genesis one, right? You've seen this? Raise your hand. How many of you've seen the sea monsters in twenty-one? Only a couple. They are there. They are even in your footnote for the LDS edition of the Bible. You know, follow your footnote down in the King James Version of verse 21 and the footnote will tell you H-A-B, which stands excuse me, H-E-B, let me pronounce it correctly which stands for Hebrew. It will tell you that the Hebrew word there, Tanin, means great sea monsters. It's there. And we read this text and we think, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it probably means whales which is exactly the way the King James Bible goes with this tradition. But it really means sea monsters. It really means Leviathan and Kraken and, you know, whatever else. Because this is the worldview of these authors. That there, ex- there existed sea monsters that represented the forces of chaos. And you'll see allusions to this in terms of theomachy, a technical term that scholars use, meaning divine combat, in texts such as Psalm 74, 12 through 14 praising God in a different way than the author of Genesis 1 does. We read, For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the water. And they get the translation right there. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gavest him to be meek to the people inhabiting the wild. Well, why then did God create sea monsters? A very conservative reader might look at this and I hate to use that terminology, I'm not. it sounds pejorative, but some readers might read that and try to make it scientific, right? And say, okay, sea monsters, it's just a term for whales and sharks and things like that. And, and, and make the text accord with our view of creation. And in the process, we lose what that author was trying to convey. Because you see, in this world... That term that I used, theomachy, or divine combat, was a very real issue. It's very difficult to turn to creation stories from the world of the Bible and not uncover an example of divine combat, such as that which is depicted in the Babylonian creation myth, Anuma Elish, which in Akkadian, the language of Babylon and Assyria, means one upon high. We read that the god Marduk... Created the world by going to battle. Notice that he is subjugating the sea monster, the waters underneath his feet in the slide. And through this subjugation, through this victory in battle, Marduk, the chief king of Babylon, is able then to create the world. And the Babylonians explain this process over and over again. So a text like Psalm 74 is drawing upon that sort of common Cultural assumption to praise the God of the Bible, put him up on a pedestal, as being so powerful. But what, a text, what about a text like Genesis chapter 1? Well, that's fascinating. Where's the theomachy? Where is the divine combat? God simply speaks the words, and creation comes into existence. In fact, the text goes so far as to say that God did not fight the sea monsters. He created them. Is it a polemic? Isn't this author writing in an ancient context looking at this situation and circumstance and saying, yeah, your gods. Well, let me show you about our God, the God of Israel. He didn't need to fight the sea monsters. He created them. And you ought to have faith in him as opposed to these false gods and goddesses. And Is there a good theology there that a Latter-day Saint could draw by reading the text in its historical context? Of course. How about another one? This is fun from Genesis chapter 1, speaking of science, and since we're getting into creation and gospel doctrine, I believe next Sunday, here's what you can do with this. Um, in You'll have to visualize this. But each creative day is set up sequentially so that it's mathematical in a sense. Day 1 in creation links with day 4. Day 2 links with day 5. Day three links with day six, and I taught this in my Gospel Doctrine lesson, and you can do it in yours. You can just draw a box and show it. Lines up sequentially. And the reason that this works is because of ancient cosmology, which is different than the way we view creation in the world. Day one, God divides the light from the darkness. Day four, he creates the entities that pertain to that sphere, the stars, the sun, the moon, those things that provide light. Day two, he divides the waters from up above versus the waters below through a firmament, a plastic dome that keeps those waters up above safe and secure. Now, I grew up in San Diego, and and my family has a surfboard company, and my mom, on my mom's side, and I am passionate about the ocean, and passionate about water, and passionate about surfing. Like, you cannot believe Okay, it's ridiculous. So I spent a lot of days, in fact, too many days, just lying up and look on the sand and looking up at the blue sky. And here in Southern California, you can relate to what I'm talking about. Today was kind of that day. It wasn't the cloud in the sky. Have you ever done that and looked up there and just looked up there and had the thought that looks like water, looks like the ocean? Come on, who's who's thought that? Anyone? Am I alone? <laughs> I'm. Oh, I'm the only one who's thought that. Are you serious? Painted. It,
0: it looks, looks painted. Like
2: okay, I like painted. That's a good one. I look up there. I see water. I see ocean. Even before I knew this account, I saw. Do it tomorrow. if there won't be a cloud in the sky, do it and look up there. And it made, and so that's what ancient people did. It looked like the ocean to them. And not only that, but then what comes down from it? Water, right? Water came down from it. And so it makes sense. So what does God do? He opens up the floodgates. What does Malachi say? Um, pay your tithing, and I will open up the window of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you. going will literally open up the firmament and pour down the water. It's going to come down. And so he divides the water from above, water below on day two. What does he create on day five? The fish and the fowl, the bird, because they connect with the two water spheres. Day three, he creates the land. Day six, what does he create? animals and the humans that pertain to that. It's not science. It's not at all science. It's showing that there was a plan, that there was order, that there was structure to be in here, and that one could put one's faith in this God who creates as defined in the Bible. So, historical criticism is something that we need not fear. There are wonderful insights that happen as we engage this sort of analysis. that that adhere wonderfully to our theology, sometimes even confirming, as we've seen, what Joseph taught us, both in sermon and in Holy Writ. So why the challenge? Well, the conclusions that for over 130 years scholars have come to regarding the development of the sources specifically in the Pentateuch, though there is academic debate, and not always will be, there is a consensus And that's a big deal. I tell my students at the U, that's a big deal. Not that scholars are always right, especially in historical analysis. But still, scholars, right, as many here can attest, because you are, um, make their living off of running against the grain. If you can come up with a view that counters the consensus, that becomes an article, which then becomes a book, which then leads to tenure. (laughs) So if something lasts as a consensus academically for 130 to 150 years, we better take it seriously if we are pursuers of truth like Joseph Smith was. If we are critical readers of the Bible like Joseph Smith was. And when we do that, we read that Moses didn't write the, uh, the books of the Bible, that these are Judean scribes putting together different versions of the history of the world, and the history of Israel, and that they conflict with one another. And that's okay. That is okay. In fact, that's a good thing. And I use the analogy in the book of sacrament meeting. It's as if we worship with these authors who may believe differently than we do, in the same way that we are edified by worshiping with others in a fast and testimony meeting. I may not agree with everything that that is said from the pulpit that day, in fact, chances are I won't, right?
1: <laughs>
2: But if I listen to that person's experience with the divine, I am edified. Even if I am thinking critically about, hmm, maybe I see it differently. And that's kind of what's happening there in terms of the historical analysis, recognizing the different authorial voices. As we do this, however, the consensus is, is that these sources were written by Judean scribes, the earliest of which starts maybe the ninth century BC. At about the same time the biblical Hebrew is even developing as a written script, as a piece of written scripture. And once that happens, we recognize that. What does a person do with a book like Moses? Yeah, that's what my book deals with not that I have all the answers but I'll just take Moses for example in the next minute because I want to leave plenty of time for questions what do I do with Moses I like that I believe that the prophet Joseph Smith first of all let me state I believe I have a testimony of the book of Moses of scripture it has inspired scripture
0: <coughs>
2: I do I, just, I do the book of Abraham as well. But, that having been said, I can't see Moses as written by Moses. Not with what I know. In fact, if we read it carefully, Moses really isn't even presented as the author of that first chapter of Moses chapter 1. Go back and look. The historical superscription or introduction will tell you in third person the words that Moses saw on an exceedingly high mountain and and it, and then Moses said this, and Moses said that. It's not even Moses himself talking. Even if you just don't know all everything I just said, but just read it carefully, we're going to have to come to a different conclusion and shift our understanding a little bit, perhaps as individuals. What I believe is happening in a text like that is that the prophet Joseph Smith, because there are these different voices through revelation, receives a text like Moses that organizes and provides structure to the chaos that is Genesis, with its various voices. And in so doing, imitates God, whom Joseph declared, and we should have learned and paid attention to when he was talking about in the first place, doesn't create out of nothing, but organizes the chaos in the creative process. In this process, then he transforms what scholars would call the Zitzen Laban or the setting in life for the way that we approach <coughs> the chapters of Genesis. It transforms it as revelatory material, given to Moses, the mediator of the covenant with the God of Israel, put into his using him as an instrument, as a tool, and taking that revelation <coughs> and putting it on an exceedingly high mountain, hence temple. And now when I read Genesis, I read it as temple literature. I read creation as temple motif. I read the story of Genesis and the fall as an exceedingly high temple revelation. I read, I read the identification of, of witnesses in there as they, uh, the origin of sacrifice and the law of sacrifice. And it's all prefigures the endowment from an historical perspective. And that's one of the things that it does. That's just one of many things that it does and we can take these texts and even the book of Abraham now if you follow anything that I've posted online um, you're going to know that uh, I, yeah, it's the same thing for me I, I, I can't, the Egyptological evidence is absolutely overwhelmingly compelling, right? I cannot accept the idea that the book of Abraham is constituted, ever existed on a, a, even a portion of the scroll that Joseph had on his possession I, can't, I just can't go there Okay? with the evidence, it doesn't work for me Okay, I'm okay with that. I'm more than okay with that. Because the second I take that away from the papyri and put it into the words and visionary experience of one whom I view and adhere as a prophet of God himself, Joseph Smith, and see Joseph organizing chaotic theology and using things that he was studying at the time, including biblical Hebrew, and then just trying to interpret the papyri as best he could becomes a totally different type of scriptural text for me, yet one that for me is absolutely inspired. And in the process, as I showed, and I do in the book, it still, in an amazing way, captures many ancient theological constructs or paradigms, such as the counsel of God, the escape of the use of the altar as an escape or a place of asylum, References such as that. The book of Moses is going to, interestingly, in the original form of the manuscript, talk about God as a man of counsel. And you guessed it, it will spell it C-I-L. Although we use S-E-L in our current edition. The book of Moses is going to describe Moses as having, as being like God. You'll be like God, Moses, and you'll control the waters. You're not going to get that in the King James Version of the Bible. But we've just seen how the controlling the waters was an incredible power bestowed upon divinity in the world of the Bible. And these books take ancient theological constructs and paradigms and organize them in the restoration, therefore, is not just bringing what was known into the present, it's bringing things that were not known even, or that were known, and organizing them into the context of the latter days in the process for me doing something that is so much more profound and meaningful than translating some silly piece of papyri that was written by an Egyptian scribe during the Ptolemaic era. Joseph was producing scripture. And I share those thoughts and convictions with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Alright. thirty-two. I wanted interaction and questions. So we've got like twenty-five minutes or so, at least, David.
1: I, you know, I, I sense that you a great reluctance on your part to tell us what the problems are that a critical reading of the Bible uncovers for Mormons. Mm-hmm. And I would like to know. Sure, I, I don't. It's not I mean most of us here are pretty old. We're not high school students, so <laughs> our our, uh, our testimonies have been shaped through the years and are unlikely to be shaken as a result of one lecture given tonight. And I'd just like to know, what are the problems that a critical reading of the Bible creates mm-hmm. for traditional Mormonism? And I understand that you have answers to those, but I just wonder what the problems are. Maybe and, and you probably can't tell me all of them, but if you gave me four or five Well, I'd be
2: happy. I, I did in so far as the book I did try. I felt I was trying to give a basic idea of it, talking about the documentary sources and their origin and their, uh, and the fact that Moses did not write them. And they okay, we not got Moses didn't
1: write the Bible, so I mean, he didn't write the the, the first, first five books. Mm-hmm. What and, else?
2: And therefore, uh, that creates issues for the Book of Moses, the Book of Abraham, which attributes even those texts earlier to Abraham because remember he revises Genesis material, yeah. and that's specifically what this book deals with okay. Is are those major issues that it presents and if there was a reluctance that you sensed it wasn't because <coughs> I felt like oh this group can't handle it just the opposite that's all my book does right mm-hmm. is lay it out specifically but some of these issues especially if one hasn't delved into the documentary hypothesis yet I mean to take in you're going to have to look at it and, and go through and, and see it. But it also, just to piggyback on that idea, um, connected again with the book of Abraham, from an historical <laughs> critical perspective, it would have been impossible for Abraham to have ever written those texts, not only because of the fact that it uses documentary sources that we know were written by Judean scribes, meaning Genesis 1 and 2, and revises them as Abraham's revelatory experience and puts it into the God's. But as I said, um, Hebrew we know as a written language develops in the t- at the latest in the 10th, 9th centuries B.C., and it's a, they adopt a Canaanite script to write Hebrew, and so there was no these there's no way that Abraham was walking around writing scripture in Hebrew. I mean, one could argue maybe he was writing in some other language of some sort, but the text that we have, that he revises, that come from the Bible, those are Hebraic texts. They weren't written in another language. And not only that, but we're dealing with the fact that in Judaism, ancient Judaism, ancient Israelite view, the idea of authorship, of it was irrelevant. That's why I pointed to the, idea, the issue of the difference with the Book of Mormon, where you have authors that are named. Um, they didn't. The idea of attributing a source to an author to legitimize that, that, that source in Judaism, develops as a result of Hellenistic influences. So even the first three books don't picture a time period in history.
1: The first three books of...
2: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And even numbers, really, to some extent. Those books don't even visualize a time when prophets were walking around writing scripture. Because Israelites were an oral-based society, not a text-based society. So from their perspective, it was just all talking and stuff like that. So all of a sudden, the view even of like, and then you go to the book of, uh, book of Moses, and it takes not only does it talk about Moses writing scripture, it says Adam wrote scripture. And it's reflective of, and it's anachronistic, reflects a very late view. And so these are the types of issues that my book addresses in great detail. It lays it all out, it shows it, and then I explain how I make sense of it. And, it, and so I tried to give you a basic introduction to that, but the technical aspects of it, they are kind of technical. They mm-hmm. really are, and it exactly. takes a while to lay out. But thank you. Okay. So <laughs> when we read um, Adam and Eve and them um, gaining knowledge of good and evil, yes. we usually interpret it as saying, oh, before they ate the fruit, they were like little kids, couldn't really tell right from wrong, and after they eat the fruit, now they have a moral ability to distinguish good eat from evil. Yeah. How did people in 600 B.C.E. view that term, knowledge of good and evil? <laughs> you set me up, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's part of my dissertation topic, so he's so kind. Uh, you yeah, yeah, well, uh, know, I want to give lots of people a chance to ask questions in this, and to, to dialogue, so let me be brief and state that... <coughs> One of the neat things about documentary analysis, since Genesis 1 is an entirely different tradition and source than the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 2, you've sat in gospel doctrine and and, and read, and we've, we've talked about, boy, there are two different commands. Multiply, replenish the earth, have joy in your posterity. Get to Genesis chapter 2. Don't you dare eat that fruit that's going to allow you to multiply, replenish the earth, and have posterity. Genesis chapter 1 man-woman created to be like God in his image, in his likeness, to rule, to reign, to have dominion. Genesis chapter 2. God doesn't want the people to become like he is because he didn't get eat the fruit. And, we, and then, how do we explain this? We explain it with a theological paradigm that two contradictory commandments allowed us, right, allowed he, those humans for agency to exist. And it probably never felt fully satisfying to you as an answer. And I'm not trying to diss our theological construct that we've put onto that text. I think it's a beautiful construct. I think it explains something about God's nature that is wonderful. I love it. But when you add that to the knowledge that these are two separate historical traditions that have very different views on creation, it helps relieve some of that contention. Specifically also, the knowledge of good and evil um, to know is a sexual knowledge, and the story is very, and I actually talk about this in my book, I had to bring in a little bit of my dissertation in the book, so I did a little bit, just, and it really is, it's a, a story of etiology, explaining like a just-so story in a sense. Let's explain how, why human sexuality is so different than that of the animals. They ate a fruit, it granted them the ability to know, in a biblical sense, like the gods know implying, my extension, that the gods by the way, have sexual awareness which is then, that's what my dissertation is, so thank you. Brian
0: Um, Given given the way that you gave your presentation I'd like to ask a question on henaltheism, and I want to put it in the terms of, say the New Kingdom right, Akhenaten and Mm -hmm. Atenism, on Mm -hmm. the one hand and Mm -hmm. then maybe the Ugaritic stuff, and I'm thinking here of, of say Mark Smith's work and then what you want to do with with the covenant people.
2: Give me a little bit more specificity in terms of the question then.
0: What's your view on henotheism vis-a-vis the Bible? We'll put it that way.
2: Okay. Um, My personal view is, like I suggested, monotheism starts to emerge in the biblical sources as a result of the exile specifically. Okay? So... Panotheism, those who aren't familiar with the term, refers to the acknowledgement of multiple divinities in the universe, yet worshipping one. Seems to be a pretty good description, more or less, although obviously we're superimposing it, right? But it seems to be more or less a good description of the general view that most biblical authors held regarding their relationship to divinity. And you can see this in a number of instances, for example, uh, Genesis chapter one twenty six, twenty seven. when God speaks in the plural, he's speaking consensus holds amongst critical scholars to the gods of the council, but note that they're not named. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 that I mentioned, when Yahweh confirms slip the serpent state, states, look, he's speaking to the Elohim, the gods of the council, <coughs> the man has become like one of us, no good and evil, but they're not named. So what's interesting here, in my mind, is that you can see why monotheism would start to emerge in a society that acknowledges the attestation of these multiple gods, but is already religiously conservative and not wanting to focus too much attention on it. That specifically in terms of my dissertation where I explored the uh, Yahweh's sexuality was one of the big points for me, actually, because, and I used the term, I used the expression, absence of evidence is not the evidence of abstinence.
0: <laughs> which I thought was clever <laughs> I liked that but it, was, it,
2: meant, it meant something by that in the sense that just because God is not explicitly portrayed as sexual doesn't mean in the back of their minds that's not what's going on there in terms of the constructs that they're putting together and if we read it like an ancient person would we'll find hints of it so I think there's an emergence of that and we see it already in the book of Deuteronomy too which is very very late connected with Josiah's reforms, at least portions or segments of it. And in Deuteronomy, and the book brings this out, and it's a consensus view, right? It's not like my observations. But you'll see not only, there's this emphasis upon the one. There's one place of worship. One people. One covenant. One temple. One, one, one. And you're already starting to emphasize that. And by the way, Deuteronomy is going to become anti-anthropomorphic in a way that the other sources accepted that are earlier than that, which are theology, theological paradigms that we feel more comfortable with as Latter-day Saints, and I draw that. So that's a basic, answer, very good. oh, that was right here, sorry, yes?
1: Oh, I appreciate it. You had made a reference uh, to the I and Nephi's uh, uh, description of Moses and a lot of the Book of Moses yes. and the Book of Mormon. Now, I'm thinking of the brass plates, they had a better source. I, I like what you said about those first books of Moses. I, mm-hmm. I have a lot of trouble with those, uh, even with Joseph's corrections and you know, additions, because there could be more. Yeah. Uh, but how do you feel about uh, Lehi, Nephi, Jacob quoting out of, off of the brass plates? I don't know that the brass plates are actually considered inspired scripture like the gold plates, or if it was you know certainly had a genealogy on it. It had you know the, the, the creation, the with the five books of Moses. Yeah. Uh, so how do, you, how do you feel about that? I, I, I place more weight on the Book of Mormon because it mm-hmm. had an original document. Great form. question,
2: and I do address this in the book. But the way I do it in the book is kind of the way I answer it right now, and that is that just kind of offer different different ideas that you can you know, explore. See, one idea is that, well, of course, the extreme end, you know, that the Book of Mormon—I I mean, extreme orthodox end because I think there's still a hint of orthodoxy in this, would be the expansion theory, right? That there are there's a basic historic core to the Book of Mormon, but it's still entirely revelatory. I mean, Joseph Smith, as we all know now, right, is not even looking at the plates. He has his head buried in a hat. He's looking at the seer stone. The entire experience is revelatory. And therefore, since revelation must pass through each of us as individuals, we would be naive to assume that there aren't very strong Joseph Smith isms incorporated throughout the text, right? Which can be taken in lots of different directions, including perhaps, um, you know, it, it may be and, you know, Kent, in his dialogue art, article, Kevin um, Barney wrote back in the 90s, I think it was, maybe in the early 2000s, uh, he made the suggestion that perhaps the reference to five books of Moses, the term five, may have been a gloss. Maybe it just said the books of Moses. Maybe there weren't really five. So there are different ways that a person could approach that. The challenge that we face is that most biblical scholars, myself included, believe that the Pentateuch itself, the five books of Moses, really had a hard time placing that as a combined source and text prior to the Persian era, which makes it very, very late. The other issue that you're dealing with there is that it's very hard for me, you know, with my knowledge of ancient areas, to imagine not only five books of Moses compiled on brass plates, but the Deuteronomistic history as well, which they would have had. I mean, that what I mean by that—that's volume two. Sorry, i do not there. What I mean by that term is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and that and Kings, and that they're all brought together and put in an Egyptian translation. We've heard of the Septuagint, which is our earliest reference historically to when the text starts to be translated, these sacred writings start to be translated, they're not in Egyptian, they're in they're in Greek. And from the time period I would feel more comfortable. I wish, for example, if I could have if I could have my wish. I you know, this is a terrible way approached, but I'll just tell you, if I I would love it if instead of Egyptian, if the breastplates had been written in Akkadian and not only because I'm a Semiticist and I deal with Akkadian but because historically that makes more sense because the Egyptian because the Mesopotamian influence is so pronounced and I deal with this in the book on the development of those texts they are working with these are produced by Judean scribes who are being trained in Akkadian um, as a result of the Assyrian and later Babylonian conquest so if we would have had something like that I would have been like oh man it I, I could make a, I could make a case for it. As it stands, historically, I just, it's hard. And, and I I don't have an answer to it, so I just throw out the issues and kind of explain it from those angles in terms of that, that chapter. And that, because the Book of Mormon is so sacrosanct, that was the hardest chapter to write. And I hope I did a good job. <clears throat> I came here tonight thinking that uh, your your trilogy would be commentaries on the Old Testament, but As you talk about it, I'm wondering, is it more thematic? I mean, tell me a little bit about Mm. your approach. Yeah, good. Um, Did you see the advanced reader copy that came around it? It definitely is not a commentary. Yeah, it's more thematically. It's an introduction to historical criticism from the perspective of authorship. So Volume 2, for example, will deal with what I mentioned, the Deuteronomistic history, but it'll also talk about the issue of Israelite prophecy, including Deuteronomy, Isaiah, which is a issue that i absolutely convinced is legitimate. Scholarly, academic observation. Talk about that, and as those of you who have explored that issue, um, in some ways the Pentateuch stuff is easy, although it's still challenging. Isaiah stuff, that's hard. So there are these anachronisms in the Book of Mormon, and the point I make in the book is that okay, so let's not run from them, let's just say they're there. Let's just say they're there, and even if the answer is I don't have an answer. Sometimes that's okay, but let's deal with them critically and acknowledge them and not sweep them under the rug. And that's kind of where I go with that.
1: You mentioned the differences between Genesis 1 and 2 and a lot of pre-Temple uh, imagery and then the Deuteronomists. Margaret Barker talks about all of those things. I'd love to know your thoughts about her writing. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. I know she's made such a great big splash amongst Mormons and I am so I and I'm I just I'm a little bit more cautious in my praise for her because what I believe strongly that a source needs to be analyzed first in its original setting and context and, and, and the problem is, she'll take a book like Hebrews, which, and she'll use Hebrews then to analyze and try to recreate first century views and ideology. And that's from, you know, from a historical critical perspective, that methodology is quite problematic, obviously. So there are some issues that I have with her approach, such as that, that I'm, very, that I'm concerned with. Is the, just the basic answer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're almost out of time. Just a question.
1: Where do women fit into this
2: historical? Oh, what a fantastic question. Um, it, it depends upon how to answer this question. It depends. Are we talking female scholars or women in the Bible itself? Women in the Bible. Okay, in the Bible in the itself. It. Well, one of the interesting mm-hmm. things that I, will, I do point out in the book is the evolution of of laws that you'll see in the Pentateuch, which again shows that these are different sources coming together. For example, the slave laws, and I point this out right in chapter 1, because for me, and I'll tell you guys this, this was the issue, remember when I was talking about the beginning when I was looking at laws? I was like, okay, I'm going to have to deal with this. So I kind of reflected that in chapter 1. I said, let's throw it out there. And the law of slaves in Exodus that talk about slavery, they allow the male slave to go free after a certain amount of time of service. The woman who goes into debt slavery, according to Exodus' legal collection, which is part of the known as the covenant collection, beginning with Exodus chapter 21, women are never allowed to go free. It's terrible. And and so what happens later? Deuteronomy takes that same slave law and already starts to revise it and say, no, 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 no. It allows the women to go free. And Leviticus does something entirely different with the slave laws. And you start to add up these differences and you realize these are not penned by the same person. And sometimes we see an evolution, especially in terms of the way that women are treated and handled in the text. But that having been said, you know, that's one of the benefits of historical criticism from my perspective. Because we are able to look and see inspiration in the text as they interact with divinity from their perspective, we're also able to sit back and say, "No way, I, I don't buy into that." And you're especially going to see that in terms of the Hebrew Bible's portrayal of women. As you know, it's uh, the feminist side of me cringes
1: through a lot of those texts. So doesn't doesn't that kind of point out the absurdity of taking an isolated quote from the Bible? To prove almost anything. I mean (laughs) Exactly.
2: Because the Bible is there's and that's what I tell my students at the U, um, you can't talk about what is the biblical view on marriage. Right? What is what is the biblical view on God? What and there isn't a singular. There isn't. And that and see, that's why historical criticism for even a religious person, especially a Latter day Saint Seeker of Truth, I think is so helpful. Boy, especially if we're gonna take these ancient traditions and formulate our legal system, right, based upon this, this ideology. We should be very critical of it, even though it's Scripture.
1: In this book about the Septuagint and its influence, one of the things he does is point out that in places the Septuagint agrees more closely um, with what we think than does, uh, say, the, you know, the Hebrew. And, and he points out that, that the Dead Sea Scrolls there are multiple copies of books, for example, like Genesis and Exodus. And, even multiple copies, though no fewer, of some of the minor stuff, like the Song of Solomon. No two <coughs> texts agree completely with each other. And, apparently the people in, in that community, were not that uncomfortable with with variations in the text. So, maybe we have to get used to it, too. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point.
2: No, I, I, that's well expressed. Thank you. Um, one more minute or so, last question?
1: Does the critical analysis approach uh, give uh, cause problems for Orthodox Jewish scholars? Oh yes. How do they, how do they react to that?
2: I'm glad you asked that. Uh, it was fascinating at Brandeis because the Jewish students, undergraduates, and they'd start taking some of these you know, general survey courses, and are exposed to these ideas, it was hard, very difficult, challenging to them. And so, you know, I learned a lot from that, speaking personally. And I adopted that in my course last semester at the University of Utah, where I taught historical criticism, and I had different, I had Mormons, I had non-Mormons, I had evangelicals, and, and you know, atheists all studying this, the Bible together. And for the religious people that started to feel uncomfortable, I used the same line of reasoning that we would use at Brandeis, which was, look, we're not asking you as religious people to buy into these scholarly theories. Just understand them. Understand why scholars think the way they do on these texts. And then do with it what you want. But just understand it. And that's very much the way that we present it. But on top of that, I would answer that the book that I cited, and that it, it influenced some of the th- ideas and things the way that I structured some of the things in my own book. I freely admitted and acknowledge it right in the book itself, is my professor Mark Brettler, who is an Orthodox Jewish scholar and an absolute critical thinker in terms of the Bible. And in his last chapter of that book, How to Read the Bible, he explains how he is able to make sense of the Bible critically and as an observant Jew. And basic, his basic answer is he approaches the Bible as a source book. Because there are so many different views, he's able to look at it and, and respect different ideas and views, but then pick and choose as to the ones that he finds inspiring. Thank you, Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful <coughs> evening.
0: You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.